if you look hard enough, life includes some sad ironies. Bill Hillman, the author of multiple books about how not to get gored by bulls, including his book, How to Survive the Bulls of Pamploma, was the only non-Spaniard to get gored in 2014, running of the bulls of Pamplona. The modern fire hydrant was probably patented in 1801 by a man named Frederick Graff. But in 1836, the U.S. Patent Office burned to the ground, destroying all records of it. The former beetle and the keen gardener George Harrison died in 2001. In 2004, a pine tree was planted in L.A.'s Griffith Park, where they have a big observatory there today. And it was planted there in memory of him. But ten years later, after they had planted the tree, it had died because it had become infested by beetles. And in Orlando, Florida, 1986, 12 members of a jury got stuck in a courthouse elevator for 20 whole minutes, and those jurors were in the courthouse that day to hear a case against the Otis Elevator Company. <laughs> These are unexpected, somewhat sad stories. And the story of the Bible begins with the saddest of all ironies. It begins with God that assumes his existence, who chooses out of his own wise counsel to create a people in his image. He doesn't have to make them, but to showcase his glory and his love, he makes human beings and he places them in a luscious garden that's built for their dominion. And he gives them the joyful run of the place, letting them name his creatures and rule over all that he has made. He gave them but one simple rule. They could enjoy everything he had created, but they were not to eat of one set-apart tree in this incredible garden that was stocked full of such good things. And if they did, they would experience death. Well, you would expect these people, made in his image, to honor this one command and to enjoy their existence in the light of his goodness. But when an enemy appeared and whispered lies in their ears, they found themselves actually desiring to take the place of this God, and they chose to break his one rule. Truly, that is the saddest of ironies. But there is a surprising twist to this story. A happy irony, another turn that you also would not have expected. After the man and the woman rebelled, you, you would have expected God to immediately bring them to death. But though he curses the world that he'd created for him and makes them live under this curse, he does not immediately bring them to death. No, before he sends them out of his garden, he gives them promise instead that one day an offspring would come from this very woman who rebelled against him and that this offspring would slay that deceitful tempter and restore God's people to their rightful place over his creation. 
We see the hope of this offspring driving the storyline of Scripture. It's a first promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. But then we see the promise made clearer in Genesis chapter 12, when God tells a man named Abraham that through him all of the world would be blessed. And this man Abraham, he had offspring, a man named Isaac. And Isaac had offspring, a man named Jacob. And Jacob, later renamed Israel by God, had 12 sons. And one of those sons, a wretched man by the name of Judah, finds an important place in the latter part of the Bible's first book. Unexpectedly, we see God begin to elevate this man. And at the end of Genesis, important promises are made by God concerning Judah and the offspring who would come from him. That the ruler's scepter would be his forever. Now, in this sin-cursed world, God allowed his people Israel, the descendants of this man Jacob, to become enslaved by another nation, the kingdom of Egypt. And for 400 years, they waited on God to deliver them with his promised offspring. And God raised up a man named Moses, who defied Pharaoh, and with the Lord's power, led God's people out of the land of Egypt. And God delivered them from Pharaoh's great army by leading the Israelites safely through the Red Sea, while Pharaoh and his horde were, of course, destroyed by it. He gave his people law while they were in the wilderness, that they might know him and that they might follow him, their God. But like their first parents, they quickly rebelled and faced judgment in the desert. But after 40 years of wandering, God led these people into his promised land. And now Moses, he was a wise deliverer, but he too had lost faith with God at one point and was not the leader who would bring them into this good land. Another important man is raised up, another imperfect man, by the name of Joshua, who took the mantle of leadership, and he led God's people against God's enemies, securing a place for themselves in God's chosen location. But in the book of Judges, there are still enemies to be rooted out, and Joshua has now died. So what are God's people to do? Who would be the deliverer who would guide them? And what of God's promise of an offspring who would come to make all things right? The Bible is a sad irony with an incredible joy-filled twist. And the book of Judges is right at the heart of it. Throughout the Bible, there is a pattern that emerges again and again. It is the overall storyline of the whole book, and it is a storyline that again and again and again happens throughout the book of the Bible. God creates. He does something wonderful. He makes something wonderful. And then mankind, the top of his creation, falls in sin and experiences awful consequences. But... 
God again and again and ultimately throughout the entirety of Scripture redeems man in the most incredible ways, bringing them through floods, raising up judge deliverers, bringing his ultimate son Jesus, the offspring prophesied, to die on the cross and pay the price for their sins. And then God restores all things to being good when one day kingdom comes to earth. We see this again and again, this pattern. And the book of Judges is a microcosm of this. It is a snapshot of the Bible's pattern. God has created his people and he has placed them in a good place. And God's people, they rebel against him by losing faith in him and by choosing other gods over them. And this leads them to judgment and pain and sorrow. But when they call out to him in need, God graciously raises deliverers to save his people. And rest and restoration. But because the book of Judges is only a microcosm and not the full accomplishment that God has planned through his perfect offspring to come, we see this pattern repeat itself again and again. God's people sin. He sends a deliverer to restore them. Things are okay for a little while, and then they sin again. Over and over, a cycle of sin, weeping, deliverance, and restoration. To more sin, weeping, deliverance, and restoration. To yet more sin, weeping, deliverance, and restoration. And on and on and on in this sick, cyclical pattern that is the heart of man. Judges itself is a book of sad irony. The God of victory who has already proven himself to be faithful and victorious on behalf of his people declares that he will use his chosen people to bring glory to his great name by bringing judgment down upon his enemies and by providing rest to the ones he loved. But here's this odd irony. Instead, his people don't trust him. They don't believe his promises. And they are not waiting for the offspring to come. And their unfaithfulness leads them to weeping and sorrow rather than to rest that God wanted to provide. So a few things about this book. First of all, it is set after Moses had already led Israel out of the land of Egypt. And it is set after Joshua had led the Israelites in their initial conquests of Canaan, the promised land. But it is set prior to the days of Israel's kings that are mentioned in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And it was written perhaps by the prophet Samuel, although really good scholars will disagree on when it was written and who wrote it. But it was written to awaken the people of Israel in that day to the nature of their sin, to their need for their God's deliverance, and to their ultimate duty to be faithful to their God. And it's broken down into three parts, really. The first part is chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 6. We'll finish that off by next week, which is somewhat introductory and sets the stage for the rest of the book. 
And then we get into part two, which is the rest of chapter three, all the way through chapter 16, where we see the patient God above again and again delivering his rebellious people. And then we get into part three. And if you haven't read it, don't read it on a full stomach. Chapter 17 through 21, where we see the people of Israel fully given over to their depravity in a shocking series of narratives. The story goes from bad to worse to reprehensible. That's the book of Judges. And it depicts our hearts that we first realize they're bad, and then we understand that they're worse. And then finally, hopefully, we comprehend just how reprehensible we are in our need for God. One scholar on Judges named Daniel Block calls this book the canonization of Israel. He means that Israel becomes more and more like the people of Canaan as the book goes on, whom they are initially brought into the land to destroy. It's a sad irony. They were called to bring God's righteous judgment down upon pagans, people who don't worship the one true God, but have taken up all kinds of vile ways in their idol worship, but instead they ended up becoming paganized themselves. So ultimately, if you want to know the big point of the story of Judges, the story of Judges is about a gracious God delivering his paganized people. Or you could say, the God of all grace is delivering worldly people. And this is crucially applicational for us, this book. It is crucially applicational for our lives 2018 and 2019. Listen to what Daniel Block also writes. He says about application for the book of Judges, he says, herein lies the key to the relevance of this ancient composition for North American Christians. For like the Israelites of the settlement period, we have largely forgotten the covenant Lord and have come to take for granted his gracious redemptive work on our behalf. Like the ancient Israelites, we too are being squeezed into the mold of the pagan world around us. Evidences for the canonization of the church are everywhere. Our preoccupation with material prosperity, which turns Christianity into a mere fertility religion. Our syncretistic and aberrant forms of worship. Our refusal to obey the Lord's call to separation from the world. Our divisiveness and competitiveness our moral compromises as a result of which Christians and non-Christians are often indistinguishable. Our male exploitation of and abuse of women and children and us being willing to say it's not a big deal. Our reluctance to answer the Lord's call to service and when we finally go, our propensity to displace thy kingdom come with my kingdom come our eagerness to fight the Lord's battles with the world's resources and strategies, our willingness to stand up and defend perpetrators of evil instead of justice. So, our only hope, end quote, our only hope, if that's us like them, our only hope is the same hope 
provided to the people in the day of Judges is the hope that's provided to us that the offspring, God's deliverer, Jesus, his son, would set us free. So let's look at our text and let's see this book begin. I'm going to work through chapter 1 fairly rapidly. I want us to catch the big stuff. In verses 1, 1 through 2, he says, After the death of Joshua, that's how he begins with the death, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So after the death of Joshua is when this is written, and that's the point he's trying to make early on in this chapter, that there's been a change of leadership. There's been a change, an era for the Jewish people. This is an an important page that is being turned here for the Israelites. They began on the right note as this page is being turned, as they go and inquire of the Lord, asking him an important question. As they have to go about mop-up duty, continuing to cleanse the land from idol worshipers, they go to him and say, Lord, who shall go up first to fight against the Canaanites? And that question itself is ironic, for they begin by asking who will go first to fight the idol worshipers of Canaan, but by the very end of the book, they look just like the idol worshipers of Canaan. They start okay, and they end wickedly. And the Lord gives a loaded answer. It's not by accident that he tells them to have Judah go up first. It is significant that the importance is placed upon this one tribe that was first marked by the wretched man who sleeps with his daughter-in-law and does other atrocities like sending Joseph off into slavery slavery in the book of Genesis. God picks this tribe and this man and those who come from him to be the ones who would deliver, no doubt pointing to the fact that one day an heir from the tribe of Judah, the lion, would come and he would lay down his life like a sheep. And he goes on. Judah, verse 3, says to Simeon, his brother, they work together, and he says, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Judah and this small little tribe of Simeon, who doesn't get talked about a whole lot, they work together to root out what's left of the Canaanites in the land. Now, likely, in chapter 1, there is some overlap between the conquests that are listed in the book of Joshua, and some of this has already taken place, but there's some overlap with stuff previously and stuff that's still happening or is about to happen as they attempt to cleanse the land of idol-worshipping. And God gives victory into the hands of the Judah contingent. In verse 4, they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites at a place called Bezek. In verse 8, they captured the city of Jerusalem, or at least a part of it, as scholars surmised, an Old Testament early location of Jerusalem. And in verse 10, they're successful in several other places as he lays out victory after victory after victory as they're spreading out through the land and conquering it in the name of the Lord. But please understand that the Judah contingent is not fully faithful to God's command here in chapter 1. In verses 6 and 7, they do not immediately kill Adonai Bezek, the king of the Canaanites, when they defeat him. Instead, they adopt pagan ways and serve their own justice. What do they do? They cut off his thumbs. They cut off his big toes. 
just as this king had done to other kingdoms that he had conquered, other kings that he had conquered, but they leave him alive, though he eventually dies in Jerusalem. You see, they've bought into the spirit of Canaan. They've bought into the spirit of the people of the land. That Rather than obeying God and taking the life of this king as God commanded, what do they do? They cut off his thumbs, they cut off his toes in the most sadistic way, and they parade him around. They didn't take his life, though eventually he seems to die. We don't know why. But eventually, though he dies, they're not being faithful with what God has commanded them to do. In verse 16, they allowed the descendants of the Kenite, who is Moses' father-in-law, his wife's dad, the descendants who came from this man, who was a priest of the Lord our God. They allowed the descendants of this man to settle peacefully. And that's okay. I think that they allowed them to settle in the land. But notice in verse 16 that they settled peacefully with the Canaanite people around them. It says at the end of verse 16, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. That seems to be a reference to the fact that they camped out in the land and they made good promises and good covenants with all of the Canaanites around them. And in a couple of chapters, we're going to see this man, the Kenite, the family that comes from him, dwelling in great harmony with Canaanites, with pagans. In verse 19, though the Lord was with them, the people of Judah, they did not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, it says, because the people of the plain had chariots of iron, it says. So evidently, fearful over the Canaanites' technological advantages, which would have been superior by far in that day, as we're on the very beginning phases probably of the Iron Age, and they got iron chariots, that's a big deal. They did not rout them, though, as they would have if they'd listened to and trusted in the name of the Lord. Now, you might say, well, maybe God was just rooting them out over time and that they were just to be patient until they removed them. And I don't think that's the case because this is not the first time that this tribe, this group of people, weren't removed because the Israelites were unwilling to remove them. If you just listen to the book of Joshua, chapter 17, it says, The people of Joseph said, so a different tribe, a different tribe of the people of Israel, Joseph, they come to Joshua and they say to him, The hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshan and in its villages and in those in the name of the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and to Manasseh, you are numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to the farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Back in Joshua the people of Joseph failed to root them out out of fear over iron chariots. And here we see the people of Judah commanded to go up first and to lead the way and root out the land of God's enemies. And what did they do? They shrink back in fear. And lastly, in verse 21, we see that Benjamin, the tribe, did not drive out the remaining Jebusites from another part of Jerusalem, most likely. So the... These are a testimony of not faithfulness. There are no heroes in chapter 1, really, because this is a testimony of unfaithfulness by God's people. 
Now, there are some odd events in this passage. There's the story of a guy named Othniel who wins a victory, and he marries Caleb's daughter there in verse 13 and requests that uh, Caleb's daughter makes upon Caleb to have some wells. And when we read that, we might conclude, that seems strange that this is in chapter 1. That almost seems kind of out of place. Why is that here? And I'm not going to tell you really today. I'm going I'm to tell you about that later when we get a few chapters in. But I'll give you a hint. The Israelites are on a trajectory that first honors women, but then by the very end of the book has completely devalued them. Oh, yes, the Bible values women highly. And in all, the Judah contingent failed to fully trust and obey God. So the leader failed. How about the rest? Well, verses 22 through 36, it begins good. The house of Joseph, verse 22, also went up. So back in chapter 4, we see Judah went up. Now we have a new transition. The house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of that city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. How did that turn out for them? Well, verse 26, The man went to the land of the Hittites and built the city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. They allowed the man to live. They could have trusted the Lord and gone right into the gates and God would have prevailed. But no, what happens? Another Canaanite builds up a city in their land. Now the Lord was with the tribe of Joseph. It tells us that. Probably this is a reference to Ephraim and Manasseh, the two halves of the tribe of Joseph and other tribes that are somehow connected to their contingent as they try to root out the Canaanites in the north. They had all that they needed to be successful. Verse 22 says, the Lord was with them. They didn't need anything more. As we're going to see a few chapters from now, Gideon can take 300 men and they can make some noise in the woods. And God can use that to defeat his enemies. They don't need anything else. God's given them everything they need. And at first, they were trusting. Livers Bethel, an important historical place that would soon house the tabernacle of God. But these other tribes, up in the north, connected to Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim, these other tribes also failed to trust and obey God. Look at verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of the important militarily strategic location of Beit Shan and all of the other locations around. Instead, what they did, once they were strong enough, is they put the Canaanites to forced labor, verse 28 says. No doubt thinking that because they were in control of the land, that they were somehow being obedient to God, so that they used these Canaanites to their own advantage. Once again, thinking as the world thinks, thinking as Canaanites think, thinking as pagans think, rather than how God thinks. 
failing to comprehend the spiritual repercussions that would come, at least at one point, one day, the spiritual repercussions that would come upon God's people as they cohabit the land with idol worshipers. Ephraim, he says, didn't drive them out. Zebulon, it says, did not drive them out. Asher did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive them out. Dan, at the end of chapter 1, is even pushed back. And when the tribe of Joseph's stronger hand comes along, verse 35, rather than finally destroying the Amorites, they once again just put them to forced labor. This is willful disobedience. Now, there is a lot of geography that is listed here, a lot of hard names, and Tim did a good job. (laughs) I hope you're praying for him while he was reading them. And it's here for a purpose. It's not without purpose. God had commanded his people to completely root out the idol worshipers from the land with all of its locations for a good reason. Because back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, it says this. God speaking to the Israelites. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. And here's the reason. Verse 18 of Deuteronomy 20. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. This is grace. Root them out, because if you don't, they are going to tempt you. That's why God tells them to do it. It's one reason. Ultimately, He wants them rooted out because they are under his judgment and God decides when he brings judgment down upon sinners who don't deserve any breath, let alone the breaths they've been given. But place after place, people after people, tribe after tribe, all of Israel exhibited unfaithfulness to their God. And in chapter 2, verse 1, God responds. In verse 1, it said, in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, Who shall go up? In verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, Judah went up. In verse 22 of chapter 1, it says, The house of Joseph went up. Well, now here in chapter 2, verse 1, the angel of the Lord went up. It's his turn. It's the turn for the Lord to speak in this narrative. And he says, the angel of the Lord went up. The angel of the Lord has come. And we're going to see more of him throughout this book. And it tells us that he came from the place where they had initially begun their conquests. Back in the book of Joshua. At a location known as Gilgal. The hub. The military center from which all of their military expeditions were launched. The angel of the Lord who had led them from the beginning to all of their different military expeditions now comes to them and he speaks at this location. This is the very angel of the Lord who had been fighting for God's people from day one. The very reason why they should have and could have trusted the Lord from day one. And he declares the message from the Lord to them and it's not a happy one. First of all, he reminds them of the covenant that the Lord God had made with them 
the people of Israel at Sinai after he had delivered them from Egypt. He says, I brought you up. I brought you into the land that I swore to your fathers, referring to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. He reminds them of the promise that he has made, but then he reminds them of their part in that covenant. They were to make no covenant with the people of the land. That's their part. No covenant with the people of the land. They were to break down their altars, ending idol worship in God's land with God's people forever. This land, this new Eden, would be a place that's only about the glory of God. No serpents, no tempters, no eating of false trees, just worship of the one true God. And he indicts them. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? He says to them. And finally, he passes judgment. A horrible judgment. He says in verse 3, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become what? Thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Essentially, the Lord is saying, I wanted to remove this temptation from you, but you would not obey. Therefore, I'm going to allow this temptation to remain in your land to see whether or not you will honor me. And we know how that goes. And we're going to see it. Sin, this sin, would have a lingering effect upon them for generations to come. It is still felt today by all of those who don't look to Christ. And their response in verses 4 and 5 is weeping. It says, As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all of the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. And they called the name of that place Bachim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. With the appropriate name of Bachim, which means weepers, they gave a name to that place. And though they wept, though they wept, they evidently did not have a grief that was a godly grief, which leads to repentance, as Paul wrote of, because the rest of the book makes very clear that their repentance was merely an emotional, temporary, and not a long-lasting change of heart. So we see a people who have fallen, and we're going to see them fall a lot further. This is not a happy book, although, although, it constantly points to a happy ending. A few applications about what we've looked at. First of all, please remember that there is good news, even in the book of Judges. The victorious God sent someone else to his land. The offspring that he long ago promised to fulfill his task of judgment and redemption. The servant of the Lord was faithful in all of his ways, never sinning, always honoring the Father. Even in the wilderness, as the devil was tempting him with bread and with the pinnacle of the temple, Jesus says, no, glorifying God, always in obedience, the better Israel, the one we could never be. And God's judgment came upon him instead of us so that we could know his rest. This is our happy irony, one to build our lives upon. 
that we failures, like every one of the people in this book and like every one of the judges who was mentioned in this book, we failures look to one who never failed and who conquered sin, death, and hell for us. We have that. So if nothing else, let this book point us constantly to the deliverer who did win. Second application, we must understand that sin has terrible lingering effects on us. There are those who have come to a false theology who they say that if they prayed a prayer when they were a little boy or a little girl or later on, that if they put their trust in Christ, in quotes, that they're good to go and that uh, sin's not going to have any big deal in their life. It's not going to have any eternal consequences and it's certainly not going to affect their lives today. And they misunderstand grace entirely. Sin does have an effect, a lingering effect upon our lives. It leads to devastation. It devastates our relationships. It affects our marriages, bringing a break in the awesome union that God has given between a husband and a wife that's to depict his awesome union between his son and his church. Ephesians 5 it brings devastation to our relationships in terms of how it affects our children. They don't see men and women of God who are striving after God's glory and God's name in delight of who he is. They see a mom and a dad who talk about God a little bit, maybe on Sundays, but ultimately their lives are paganized and want to do just like everybody else. It's all about money. It's all about pleasure. It's all about stuff. We see relationships devastated and that it affects our parents as moms and dads have broken hearts when a young man or a young woman decides they're not going to follow after the Lord, but they're going to abandon it and go the pagan route. And we see how it affects relationships as it affects our friendships, ruining us because we can't get along, because we don't keep the gospel at the center of our lives. Instead, we begin to think about other things that divide and break and destroy. It affects our testimony and our ministry. Sin, if it's not dealt with, can ruin our ability to stand for Jesus and to teach about Jesus and to share with Jesus because nobody wants to listen to a hypocrite. Nobody wants to listen to someone who says one thing but then does another. No, we want to follow people who humbly look to their God even when they sin. And it affects that. It can destroy our health. Sin can can lead us to an early grave. Proverbs have some things to say about that, how it leads to an early grave. And most of all, deprives us of joy. We don't get the joy when we let sin linger in our lives. We don't get the joy of knowing a constant, steadfast, peaceful, hope-filled, affirming relationship with the Creator, one that's marked by daily repentance and constantly looking to Jesus Christ. We miss out on that when sin lingers in our lives unrepented of. And sin can have a hardening effect upon us, just as it did for the Israelites in the book of Judges, especially towards the end, so that if we don't deal with it repentantly, our hearts will actually become cold and rock-like. The book of Hebrews, chapter 3, Verses 12 and 13 says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's writing to Christians. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
why are we picking the book of Judges to preach through? That's a weird book. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why. Brothers and sisters, deal with sin now. Confess it and turn from it. Grab your brother and your sister and work through it together, looking to the God of grace. Third, we must faithfully obey the faithful God even when the world around us tells us not to or to think differently. We looked a long time at the book of 1 Thessalonians, and there's a verse in it that I go back to a lot. Chapter 5, verse 24, where Paul says this to this congregation. He says, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If God is faithful, then we can trust in him to do it. Do what? Lead us towards holiness. Lead us towards his love. Lead us ever in his grace. Lead us until the day we see him face to face. We have to ask, is God faithful? The question they should have asked in chapter 1. Can he be trusted? And we must not answer like them. We must answer as Jesus has answered. Yes, he is faithful. And when we do so, we must follow those steps of obedience, always looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, as we look to him and follow that path until the day we die and go to glory. So let us strive for separation in our lives from pagan ways, fighting the sin that wants to stick with us and wants so very much to intermarry with our hearts. We must remember in this that Jesus has died and that Jesus has been raised and that his spirit is with us so we can say, just like the Israelites, God is with us. And lastly, I would say, let us faithfully take the message of redemption to a people who need redemption. Can you imagine the kind of bright light that the land of Israel would have been been if it had been filled exclusively with worshipers of Yahweh. What a bright light as God put his glory down and shone all of his brilliance down upon him. What a bright light that would have been to the nations, that they would turn from their ways and believe in this God, but they did not. And oh, friends, what a bright light has been shown to us today. A city set upon a hill, a bright light, a beacon for all. That's who we are. We are meant to be a testimony of the faithfulness of God to the nations, that all peoples, all tribes, all tongues might know the God of all glory. Let us faithfully take the message of redemption to people who need redemption. And that begins with you Finding one and saying to that man or that woman, let's get to know each other. Let's go to coffee. Let's get some lunch. And you build a relationship with that individual that they might see your life that is humbly rooted at the foot of the cross of Jesus. They might see a distinction in you and you might be able to share with them the one message that can save their lives just as it has saved yours. We are a beacon as a church. 
And you must be a beacon as individuals and as spouses and as families. So let us be that and do what Jesus intended and not fail in unfaithfulness as the Jews. So we begin the book of Judges. The stage has been set. We see a great need in the part of God's people that he would raise up a deliverer to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to see from your word truth. Lord, we think about the Israelites' failure, and it can become easy to be haughty and to think that if we were in that day, we would not have done that. But yet, Lord, the same heart that is in my chest is the heart in theirs. The same rebellious spirit is the rebellious spirit that I know. The same lack of faith, lack of trust is the faith in me, is the lack of faith and trust that's in me as it was in them, Lord. And so we admit, we admit, Lord, that our hearts too are broken. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see that you are a faithful God, that you have a good plan, and that we are to look to Jesus and honor you in faith. And I pray this in his name.